You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have a pretty intriguing conversation with a gentleman named Brady Ewing. Now, Brady is a former Wisconsin Badgers football player, so that's D1. That's a a very high level. He made it to the NFL, which is even a higher level, so his passion is obviously football, But his passion is also the outdoors and hunting and deer hunting specifically. And for those of you who know, most of you know, that football and hunting overlap as far as time frame is concerned. There is always a every, especially D1, right? Every Saturday is football. Now in the NFL, every Sunday is football. But at that level, football is life, right? So everything, uh, football is every day. Uh, there's something going on every day. And so the, the opportunity for Brady to get out into the woods uh, very, like diminished when he was uh, following his passion to becoming an NFL football player. And so that's what this conversation is about. It is a kind of a a hunter profile podcast where we talk about Brady. We talk about, uh, you know, having to basically choose football over hunting. And uh, sometimes life makes you choose between your passions. And uh, he he walked his path, but now that path is over and he's back in the woods. And so that's what this conversation is about today. And I hope hopefully you guys enjoy it. Before we get to this episode, though, we got to do some company shout outs here. If you're looking for a saddle, go check out Tethered. Tethered has a full lineup of all your saddle hunting needs, whether that is platforms, whether that's climbing sticks, saddle hunting accessories, uh, saddles themselves. Uh, They're number one for a reason, and it's because they've created this community around their brand to help you 
not only be, you know, the product is key, right? But the education that they provide to their community is top notch as well. So tethernation.com, go check it out. Wasp Archery, if you guys are looking for the broadhead of all broadheads, in my personal opinion, uh, majority of their heads are made in America. Best materials possible, strong feral, right? Awesome design. And so you add all that up, you put it on the end of a well-balanced arrow, it's going to destroy whatever it hits. And so uh, I'm really confident over the years, I've been able to harvest some really good deer with uh, with a, a, rate, or a, uh, a wasp broadhead on my, uh, <laughs> a wasp broadhead on the tip of my arrow and, uh, and straight up they have destroyed. Uh, They've destroyed whatever they hit, and that's the job of the broadhead. So wasparchery.com, I do have a 20% discount code available, and that is NFC20. Go take advantage of that now. Uh, Vortexoptics.com, Vortex is, you know, they are are the creme de la creme of the optics world. Huge fan of their spotter and their binos uh, that I that I use when I head out west or whether I'm in the tree stand. Uh, durable, the VIP warranty is there. And for a limited time, I believe for the month of May, if you go to, there's one specific website here. What is it? It is eurooptic.com. E-U-R-O-O-P-T-I-C, eurooptic.com. And enter the discount code, in the number nine, finger, 10 so nine finger 10 so the number nine the word finger the number 10 at checkout for 10 percent off of your vortex order and so i guess that's where they want to point people to go purchase their their uh their optics as far as right now they also have a you know the vortex gear that uh that they've been releasing that lifestyle brand type of clothing it's pretty badass man i just got their rain jacket and it's legit so uh, next on the list we have hunt stand uh, if you are looking to become better educated about the properties that you hunt there's no better um, hunting app in my you know in my opinion i mean there's a lot out there that do a very good job but there's a lot of functionality uh, with hunt stand and so hunt stand has the ability to you know change the the base map it has the ability to you know to do all the things that all the other stuff uh, all the other ones do but the the satellite imagery on that um, the satellite imagery on there is second to none right it's updated monthly and uh, so that can tell you a lot about the property on top of that they have the pro whitetail platform uh, that has a ton more functionality if you are a serious hardcore whitetail hunter right so go check out uh, huntstand.com and new we have the wood woodman's pal and this is a machete uh, this company was founded in 1941 so they've been around it's an american-made product and We've we've just started working together, and I haven't had the opportunity to use it yet. But I have chopped down some some stuff in my backyard, and it's legit, man. It, it's it's a it's a machete, but I can see it being useful, uh, keeping it in the uh, 
in my truck. When I go to check trail cameras, I'll be able to hack some some growth that, you know, let's say like a vine that's grown over it, or uh, maybe there's a, a branch that's triggering the trail camera. I'll be able to chop it down. Uh, I can clear shooting lanes with it, hack some lanes. I can uh, use it during stand prep where I can, you know, hack some small limbs and, uh, and, and get my stand in a, in a tree the way I like it. So uh, go check out wood, woodmanspal.com, W-O-O-D-M-A-N-S-P-A-L.com, uh, and check out what they have to offer. It's, it's pretty sweet, and the best part is it's made in America. So I can see that being on my hip, you know, when I'm out, you know, trimming, you know, shooting lanes and doing my, my tree stand work for the year. So, uh, and then that's it. All right. So huge shout out to all the the companies that support this podcast. Um, if you have any questions about these companies, feel free to reach out to me and and ask me, uh, I'm pretty much an open book with all of the brands that I work with. And if people have questions, I'm going to shoot you straight. So reach out to me if you have any questions. Uh, Please go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, let everybody know that the Nine Finger Chronicles is legit. And follow me on Instagram. And I think that's it. Let's get into today's uh, Hunter Profile podcast with Brady Ewing. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Brady Ewing. Brady, what's up, man? Not much. Thanks for uh, taking the time to connect. So I chat with you a little bit. Yeah, been absolutely. a long time fan. Oh, fanboy. I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, I I I love how you know. There's been some people in in the past who you know they get real nervous or they're like, oh my god, I've been listening to your podcast for so long, and then they finally meet me, and hopefully they're they're not like. They're they're just like okay, well, this guy isn't as cool as I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I haven't watched any of the. I know you're doing some video stuff on yeah. different platforms now, and so we're here talking on video. But it's cool to be able to see you, see your little studio set up, and yeah. kind of get some more behind the scenes. So yeah, I, I wish you could see how actually shitty my office is. Like it may look good from where you're at in this little section here, but if I turned it around, it's just like an old computer box, my old computer, like just gear stacked up a couch that might have mouse poop on it. I don't know if it does, but, nice. but uh, you know, so that's what we're dealing with in, in the loft office of the, of the garage. That's so. all right. Yeah. Hey, nobody needs to know that. I'm I'm at my work office here, and I got uh, stacks of paper and all sorts of stuff piled up myself. So hey, there you good. go. There you go. All right. Um. So our mutual buddy Paul, he was on the podcast uh, earlier this year, and he recommended you. He says you're a killer. Is that accurate? I've had I've had quite a bit of success, whether it be with a bow or uh, rifle hunting for whitetails and pretty fortunate i've, I've grow, grown up hunting some great land yeah and um so yeah i've been able to put it together year in and year out so it's been pretty awesome that's awesome man well, congrats and i'll tell you what it's the land that makes the big difference i mean that's the the one thing i i feel like a guy can have the best possible strategy he can get out there and he can he can know how to you know, hunt specific terrain features and he can go out sure. there and he can have the knowledge, but if the land doesn't match the expectation, then, then 
success may be hard to find. Yeah. If you don't have the beer at the end of the day, whether, whatever your standards are, if that's certain age class bucks, certain size deer, you know, just management in general, if you don't have the beer, it's going to be pretty tough to, to find something to kill. So yeah, I've been, like I said, fortunate. Yeah. All right. So a couple things here real quick before this, and this may determine whether we stop the podcast here right now, or we actually keep recording because you played football at the University of Wisconsin, correct? Correct. Right. Yep. And I am a Iowa Hawkeyes fan, and there's a bit of a rivalry there between. We're done. What? I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're done. All right, out of here. <laughs> no. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. no, it's all good, man. It's all good. I love it. Um, and so what? So you played uh, football at the University of Wisconsin. What years did you play? So 2008 to 2011-12. So my senior year a lot of fans remember russell wilson when he came to wisconsin for a year yep russell yep. and i were co-offensive captains and that was my senior year was his one year at wisconsin oh, okay cool man so what uh what position did you play i play i came in as a running back and okay. then played transitioned to fullback and special teams so okay so much like i will we still have the the fullback at the time yep. and yeah, took pride in, in trying to help the running back out. So did your coach say you had to gain a little weight going from running back to fullback? A ton. Yeah, I, I came into Wisconsin at 210, 215, and they wanted me to get up to 245, 250. So started – I put me on a weight gainer program. It was insane, man. It was fun for the first couple days, and then it got to be a chore from – going into the facility for the first meal of the day, about 2,500 calorie shake of berries, oats, peanut butter, weight gain powder, milk. I mean, just a myriad of things. And then, yeah. you know, a meal was typically Chipotle with double everything, double beans, <laughs> double rice, double meat. <laughs> I'm, then, I'm listening to this now and I say, boy, that just sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds like what I want to do with my life. Hey, like I said, it was fun for a couple of weeks and then it became a chore. I mean, I'd get two foot long subs at lunchtime. Yeah. I'd eat 18 inches and then eat the other six inches, like an hour and a half, two hours later, just every hour and a half, two hours eating Man. anywhere from 500 to a thousand calories. That's crazy. I was also on a weight gain program when I was in college, but I did not play any athletics. So <laughs> <laughs> mine did. The or oh, oh yeah. It was more than that. Dude, I bet you I put on, uh, here's what I'll say is my senior year in high school on the football roster, I was 214, was 214 pounds. Okay. When I came home for Christmas, my freshman year of college, I was 245 pounds. So, you got after it. yeah, I did. And <laughs> what, well, it's a combination of getting after it and then not also getting after it in other parts of the life. Right. So, I just went oh, for sure. booze, food, and no exercise. And that's how I gained my weight. <laughs> That'll do it to you. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is going from, you're probably a multi-sport athlete in high school to, you know, not doing anything right. as much and still eating the same or drinking a little bit more calories. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So, so obviously when you were uh, in high school, right, in order to be number one, good enough to go to 
a, a, a D1 school like Wisconsin that has a really big, uh, you know, tradition, history, is always near the top uh, in, in the Big Ten as far as, you know, the record and whatnot. Yep. You, what is, what is, so, so in high school, you had to have that somewhat of that dedication too, you know, cause natural talent only takes you so far. Then you get, yep. you get to go to college and then ultimately you're, you make it to the NFL, but talk to us a little bit about the dedication that it took from, I mean, all the way from high school to the NFL and, and what you took away from that process. Yeah. Great question. It was it was really a journey and I always had goals and destinations in mind, mm-hmm. but just like anything, whether it's with the business or football, tried to break that down to, okay, what can I actually do today to set myself up for where I want to be long-term? Yeah. And so football, at least in Wisconsin is, you know, it's not a year long thing, you know, down in right. Texas, Florida, some of those guys are glorified college programs at the high school level. And that's just not the case up here. I was a three sport athlete thought I wanted to play basketball early on in my high school career. And so I was doing the AAU circuit and tournaments and, you know, traveling around the country, doing all of that fun stuff. But once I made the transition really going my end of my sophomore year, junior year that I wanted to play football, it was, you know, working out in the summer, two days a week, eating to put on weight, working on skills, going to camps, trying to get out and get recruited in front of coaches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, mindset shift as far as football focus you know really didn't leave me until you know from mid 2000s till 2015 when i quote unquote retired from football yeah and um just an awesome ride i think where i saw some guys get into trouble is when whether i was a walk-on at wisconsin so i had a few scholarship offers a d2 one d1 scholarship offer but i walked on wisconsin which being an in-state guy you know, I always wanted to play there. And so I got the opportunity. It was able to earn a scholarship, but I think that kept a chip on my shoulder where you see a lot of guys that come in as freshmen in college on a scholarship and they think they quote unquote made it, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I, whatever you're doing, as soon as you get that mindset you kind of relax yourself. And I've always prided myself on doing everything in my power to control the controllables and put myself in a position to succeed. Um, no doubt I was gifted and talented, but I had to do the intangible things to find that edge, especially as a walk-on. Yeah. I, I listened to a very short documentary about this power lifter who for a while there, he was like a a big deal. And I, I can't remember the dude's name right off the top of my Mm -hmm. head, but he liked to lift. They showed the gym that he lifted in. And it was like mildew on the walls from water. I mean, it was old equipment. It was just like dingy and smelly. And, and it didn't look like a Gold's Gym with all the, the best equipment and, and things like that. And he said, he said, you know, if I, if I go to this Gold's Gym and I get a sponsorship with this, I'm going to not have the drive because it sucks to be in here every day. And I think the suck is what made me so you know good at what i was doing it, because if you take me out of that environment i there's i don't want to get out of this environment because i'm already in right. something different and that's what right. made him uh that's what he said helped to make him successful yeah i think anything in life you know yeah. you put your mind to it you continue to work 
and you always have that next things to reach for. And for me, it was, you know, obviously doing well in high school, but yeah. getting to that next level, becoming a contributor, working to be a part of the team, you know, eventually working to be a team captain, you know, trying to get to the NFL. So there's always something next. Um, so it was, it was a challenge to enjoy the moment because yeah. you're also, you know, you're working today to try to better the future, but um, awesome ride. Yeah. And met some amazing people, lived out a dream and uh, couldn't, couldn't have asked for more. Yeah. And so how many years were you in the NFL? Played three years. Three years. So, yeah, we drafted 2012 to the Falcons, played two years there, and then played one year in Jacksonville. Yep. Uh, each of my years, I ended up on the injured reserve. So I've oh, had that sucks. Um, nine surgeries throughout my career, throughout my life. And um, each of my NFL seasons, I had at least one surgery. So my body had gotten to the point and really challenged it and pushed it to its limits and it was uh starting to fail on me so i knew it was time to yeah. figure out what the next chapter was at that point so when you say i retired it was more of like a, a medical hey man listen i have an option i can maybe not walk in 10 years or i can just right. give it up and and move on to something different yeah and i'm i'm in okay shape i yeah. you know unfortunately I've had, you know, ACL, a couple of shoulders, both my wrists reconstructed, hernia stuff. Yeah. But thankfully I didn't have a lot of head trauma. Yeah. Um, as much as some other guys that I've, I've played with. So yeah, it, you get to the point where, and most of my injuries were early in the season. Mm -hmm. So it was things where at that level, I had to be able to, like I talked about earlier, control all the controllables. If I yeah. wasn't able to, you know, outwork people and outstrain people out on the field. I just, you know, couldn't compete at that level because there's so many talented guys. And yeah. I got to the point where I couldn't do that consistently right? to be out there. So it was like, okay, I kind of saw the writing on the wall personally yeah. and made the decision to turn the page. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I know a couple guys on a personal level that have made it, you know, a couple of them played uh, D1 uh, or wrestled D1 uh, at uh, some other Big Ten schools that I've met, um, played at Iowa, did did fairly well at Iowa, and, um, uh, and you know, made it to that level. And, and they talked about how big of a, a culture shock it is from the uh, – from high school – to college, especially on a D1 program like Wisconsin yeah. and, and Iowa. What was that culture shock like going to that next level where it's all funneled down again? They take the best people right. from college to the pros. Yeah, so it, so you're saying from the college to the pros? Yeah, yep. Yeah, it, it was, um, honestly, high school to college was a huge jump, like mm -hmm. you alluded to. It was crazy crazy from the time commitment but also as a 17 18 year old guy you're going against 22 23 year old guys that are you know grown men and you're just coming out of high school so i think yeah. that jumped physically but also it was culture shock how much time was put in from the weight room to mm -hmm. film sessions to meetings 
I mean, you're looking at eight to nine, 10 hours a day, um, plus the school commitments. Right. So when I made the jump to professional, honestly, it, it wasn't as much of a challenge because that's all you were focusing on. And okay. you were at that point where the biggest jump for me was just the speed of the game. You know, there was all of the guys were, you know, the creme de la creme of, you know, their, their positions physically. So special teams, especially I noticed it a ton because your kick return was always the worst. You, yeah. They put these, you know, six, four, six, five guys out there that run, you know, four, five, 40 yard dashes <laughs> and you're backpedaling trying to block these guys. Like this, this isn't going to end well. So yeah. from that nice. to punt cover to punt return, the athletes were just crazy. As far as in the boxes as a fullback, you know, blocking linebackers, Honestly, college in the Big Ten was probably more physical. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you got outside the tackles and you're trying to block cornerbacks or safeties, it was a bigger challenge just because of the speed. Right, right. All right. So here's where the hunting comes into play. The the hunting podcast part of it comes into play because there's some, there's some very well-known um, professional athletes out there who are also big-time uh, you know, hunters or water, waterfowl guys, fishermen, outdoorsmen, whatever. And so football, especially, and even into baseball a little bit, and, you know, even basketball, we're, we're mm-hmm. talking a time of year, right? And so the NFL and college ball runs through October, runs through November, runs through December. And if you're good, it goes further than that. So, how were you able to, if you were even able to at all, to still be an outdoorsman while you were at college and while you were in the NFL? It was tough. Honestly, that was, especially once I transitioned to the NFL, because you have a little bit more flexibility in your schedule, but there wasn't much for deer hunting at that point for me. I didn't you know, hunt down in Georgia. I didn't hunt down in, in Florida. I did some fishing and things like that, but um, so that was definitely a challenge at Wisconsin, especially you're playing football, you're preparing and, you know, opening day of gun season. Typically we had a game in Wisconsin, which was always a, a big event mm-hmm. in, you know, Wisconsin communities in, in my family. So it was always tough not to be a part of that. So it was constant reminders that, Hey, this is a finite window of time where I can you know, be able to play this game that I love and, and do this for a living at the NFL level. And um, just trying to remind myself that I have many more years to hunt after that. But yeah. there was one year, um, my first real big deer that I was able to, to kill was we got some time off during Thanksgiving and at Wisconsin and our coach specifically said, now all you Wisconsin guys don't, don't run home and go hunting. And uh, <laughs> of course I did. I ran home and uh, got a doe. That was when we were in Ernabuck, got a doe the first day and then uh, shot a 200 inch the next day. That oh, wow. No idea it was even out. Uh, running around on the land that I was hunting. Wow. Wow. So, so you, you got time, you, it sounds like you made time, uh, when at all possible. Yeah. If I had moments through college, I made it work, you know, I'd get out, even if it was to sit for a couple hours, you know, just to decompress, get out of the concrete jungle per se of, of the city. And, um, yeah, just connect, disconnect a little bit, the nature, nature and, hunting give me an avenue to just be at peace in life and just yeah you know, even nowadays with with four kiddos 
um, and all that. Just just a chance to disconnect and and take in Mother Nature. Yeah. All right. So NFL. Uh, well, see, Madison, Wisconsin. I mean, it's a the air in the area surrounding it. Some might say that's a, a bigger area. But sure. I feel like within 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you can get outside of Madison and you can be in some decent hunting, uh, you know, have yeah. some hunting opportunity. Atlanta, Georgia, Jacksonville, Florida, not so much. Right. Yeah, 100%. You know, in Jacksonville, was, there was hunting opportunities down there, but more of a fishing city. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, from Atlanta's perspective, I know there's – some guys in the industry that are making a living kind of bouncing around the urban you know, city. Yep. Yeah. And, and hunting that stuff. But that was something, you know, I didn't take any of my firearms down there or anything like that. I didn't have my bow. So it yeah. just, um, trying to focus on the main, making the main thing, the main thing and trying to make a living playing football, which, which was fun. Awesome. All right. So did you, I mean, from Wisconsin, huge traditional, you know, state as far as tradition is concerned. Um, did you grow up in a hunting family, like brothers and everybody, uncles and, and dads and everybody did it? We did, yeah. It was, for us, it was always, I didn't grow up bow hunting, grew mm -hmm. up gun hunting. So it was taking along with my dad and my brother, um, getting out to the, the family farm. We had a little cabin at the time out there, and my uncle would get together with us, some other friends, and we would have the traditional deer camp, so stay out there the night before. Um, opening day and that's really where my love of hunting grew and spending time with family and friends so yeah i can remember being in the tree with my dad and him opening up his coat and just wrapping it around me when i was just a little guy just to keep me warm and try to spend you know 10 15 more minutes out in the stand so yeah that's where my love for the outdoors grew was it was more around the people and the process of it than necessarily just killing deer yeah that's awesome um and so your story is what I would say is more of an average, like the not average, but the normal story, right? Everybody kind of gets yeah. their start on uh, during gun hunting as a kid. And then as time goes on, they, they start to show interest in archery and bow hunting. When did that start for you? For me, that was like fifth or sixth grade. I Okay. Right around that time I did, and I think Paul mentioned this on his podcast with you, the Learn to Turkey Hunt. And started to get more involved with my friends in their, uh, you know, families from a hunting perspective, whether that's raccoon hunting, you know, learn to turkey hunt and more exposure to bow hunting. Gotcha. And for me, it was an opera, you know, I love being in the woods and the traditions of gun hunting, but just loved um, bow hunting and just the more natural feel of it. You're right. I mean, yeah. deer moving around much more natural and um, you know, not pushed around, not, hunkered down trying to find a place to hide mm -hmm. and um so yeah it's been i think it was fifth sixth grade picked up a bow started practicing it took me a while to get my first deer under my belt and um but that's really become my passion now i love gun hunting love getting out with the family and, and friends but uh passion to be out there yeah and, um, by myself or even in, in a blind with the kiddos trying to trying to see what the deer are doing yeah Here's, here's what I kind of went through. I mean, my story is not the same as yours, but I got into hunting at this, this, uh, 11, 12 year old time frame, right. Got excited yep. about it, really liked doing it. And then sports hit. 
and it was one of those things where I you just can't do both. Was it hard for you to shelve hunting to go on to sports? Not really. Okay. I mean, that hunting was, while it's such a big part of my life and who I am, it was, you know, other than in college and professional, I always found ways to do it, whether it was the Saturday morning after Friday night football game in high school, mm-hmm. you know, walking all stiff leg and sore <laughs> out to your stand, trying, trying to get right. up in there. And um, so I always found a way to make it happen. And to me, it wasn't always, you know, I love turkey hunting. Yeah. when we got into that too so spending time with my dad doing that calling in birds um it, it wasn't that tough but i do know other people buddy of mine that has hunted a long time and i played football with at wisconsin he cut his you know nfl adventure short he didn't end up on a team right away but he was getting a lot of tryouts and practice squad and he he ended that just because he wanted to focus more time and attention on hunting and from my perspective, it's like, okay, you know, you get a finite opportunity, whether it's a couple of years to try to pursue the NFL thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for him, it was, you know, he wanted to focus more time on hunting and everything associated with it from out West to lo- hunting here, local in Wisconsin. And I'll tell you this, that that's, that's awesome to hear that because that just shows you how much hunting can impact a, a, an individual where they're just like, I'm going to choose hunting over the NFL. Right. Like you say, that, right. You, you say that, awesome. you say that to an average person on the street, they're going to be like, what, what are you talking about? But you say that to me or maybe to you and I can go, yeah. I get it. I get it. So oh. it, it's crazy how, how much people can prioritize that in their life. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, it's countercultural, right? Mm-hmm. People, there's a lot of perspectives out there on hunting and it's, you know, but yeah, you see people's perspective on the NFL. They think it's yeah. the best thing since sliced bread, which right. it's a football is a great game. The NFL is yeah. a, you know, putting together a good organization, but um, yeah, the passion and the love for hunting, being outdoors, people you're doing it with is is tough to come up yeah all right so uh you mentioned you have four kids right yeah okay first question why (laughs) that's a good question man honestly probably i grew up in a family of four okay i grew up in a family of four so okay you know when, when we pictured our our family units we always thought we'd have three or four kids and you know we have four boys nonetheless so it's the energy and physicalness is just off the charts yeah. you know they're involved in things but it's tough for them to find outlets for when we're in the house yeah and especially in the winter months where they're not getting outside and being as physical it's it's crazy man yeah so i have a uh, our neighbor right across the street has four daughters okay And, you know, he probably would never admit this, but when he found out he was going to have his fourth child and it was going to be another daughter, there was a little sadness in his face, right? You know, (laughs) that's over now, right? You can't do anything about it. Um, And he's not going to be able to do anything about it because he just had a vasectomy. So uh, shout out, (laughs) shout out Pete. Uh, But anyway, um, I, I always debate and they're like, 
what would I rather have? All like if I was gonna if I could only have all boys or if I could have all girls, I I think I would from a just like raising another human. I think I would choose all boys because like I feel like boys are very rubber ish, meaning they they'll do something naughty. You can yell at them, get mad at them, and then they rebound real easy after after that. Now sure. my daughter, she does something naughty. I I get after her. She will hold it against me for a whole day or two, and I'm just like, man, really? yeah. So how old is she? She's ten, right? Okay. So she's starting the transfer into you know the the period of time before being a teenager and actually being a teenager where she thinks she knows everything she's starting to get into that phase right now and it's like i love her to death she's a sweetheart but it is hard it's hard like with her so i feel like my boys i can tell them shut up and do your chores and they'll be like (laughs) okay i'll go do my chores right so that's serious yeah yeah Yep, so. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. It's, um, I guess it's all I know. You know, you yeah. have both, both, both perspectives, but for my boys getting after them, coaching them up, right. You know, they're pretty, resi- they're pretty resilient. Yeah. Do they push the limits? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are they physical? Do they have energy? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, as you look at long-term, I think I'd rather, rather raise uh boys. Than right. Myself. I've never had to say this to my daughter. Did you wipe your butt? Did, <laughs> did you wash your hands? Right. I've never had to say that to her. She she does it. Now my boys, on the other hand, like, hey buddy, what do we do after we, we poop? We wipe, we flush, and we wash our hands. Right. Those three things have to happen after you poop. Okay. Constant reminder too. <laughs> how, how do you you think after a hundred times they'd figure it? I oh, mean, yeah. I say that at least twice a day. <laughs> And and then the brush the teeth thing. Oh yeah, I'm sure that might be a battle for girls and boys alike. But yeah, it's like with four kids, I would never have guessed how much of a chore it would be to get your kids to brush their teeth. Oh right. How how old are your kids? So my oldest is eight. Okay. And we have a six year old, a five year old, and a two year old. Okay. All right. All right. Eight six five two. So they're yeah, they're all. I mean, they're all pretty tight together. But it's so cool to see how each of their personalities is unique. You yeah. know, they're very close in age, at least the, the older three. Uh, but they all have their personality. Our first is very much an obedient one yeah. and kind of, you know, by the book, uh, where our second works the fringes a little bit more yeah. and um, kind of has his own ideas, his own things that he wants to execute. If it's not his way, it's kind of the highway. So yeah. third one, verdict's still out. He can go both ways, but yeah. They're fun, man. Yeah, they're fun. absolutely. So are are they taking interest? Do they show interest in what dad is doing in the outdoors? They love it. Yeah, they do. And I know Paul asked you this on the podcast. I listened to it just about what age is the right age to yeah. have that exposure. And that's conversation we have a lot, Paul and I. Yeah. Uh, my kids, I've taken the approach of a lot of fishing. I think mm-hmm. that's like what you said. Yep. Um, a lot of outdoor time, whether that's putting in food plots, you know, shed hunting, um, things that aren't necessarily associated with hunting, but you're outdoors and it's kind of an ancillary event associated with it. Right. From 
a hunting perspective, I've taken them turkey hunting a couple times in a blind, yeah, and then deer hunting in a blind uh, as well. So sometimes I won't even take a gun, you know, when they were younger, um, but just take them along with me, have the experience, and yeah, they they love it though. I mean, I was out turkey hunting this morning before work, and I didn't take one of my kids just with how early it was, but sending them videos and they just they eat that stuff up. Up. so awesome. pretty fortunate that way hopefully that continues well it sounds like you're you're taking you're taking the path that i'm also taking and that is to not pressure them into it mm-hmm. at all because i i you often hear guys say some of their biggest regrets are two like two extremes one is not involving them at all because they're trying to achieve their personal goals and the right. other would be to try to involve them so much to match their enthusiasm level and they just get burnt out almost automatically. Right. Yeah. And I think you see that in sport a lot. Oh too. yeah. And I'm sure you know, people that, you know, they've focused on one individual sport at eight, nine, 10 years old, and that's all they're doing. Yep. And, um, you know, it's a similar thing. I think at the end of the day, you got to let your kids come to it at their own time. Honestly, if anything, my kids are asking to do more with me and we do a lot together yeah but um you know if anything i i want to do more with them but it's like okay let's think of this as a marathon here right and um, not necessarily me just wanting to do it for my selfish stuff but it's because i'd much rather go out with them yeah it's just i don't i don't want them to get burned out and even you know shooting a deer or killing something in front of them i'm i'm still figuring out when the right time to do that is right so have you have you toss that around in your mind at all well i haven't shot and well i've shot deer not with them around me but i've brought the body or we've gone like my daughter she's been on a blood trail with us um we've been hunting with my daughter we've gutted fish you know we've crossed those types of bridges with my kids um i've i brought the the morning that i shot the turkey I shot the turkey before the kids and I was back home before the kids even went to school. So mm-hmm. I was able to show them the turkey. I've uh, showed them dead deer and things like that. And they seem to be okay with it. Um, yeah. I don't like, honestly, I'll be honest. When I was a kid, before I started the hunting path, I can remember my uncles shot a coyote and I lost my cool. I was just like, I cried. I'm like, you murdered him. You killed him. Blah. You know, like, because all I was yeah. used to was Disney. And then, yeah. you know, you, you, as you get older and you learn a little bit, I, cause I, my parents weren't hunter, hunters, they just fished. And so yeah. I, I, it was a little bit different of a approach into, into it, but I'll tell you this, man, uh, what, but at, at the same time, I also kind of grew up on a farm and seeing dead animals like, Hey, this cow is going to die today, or this chicken's going to get its head cut off because we're going to eat it tonight or tomorrow or whatever the case may be. So, or we're taking these pigs in to the slaughterhouse and then out comes packaged meat, right? So Mm -hmm. you get, you get to understand that, Hey, this, like an animal has to die in order for you to a, be a hunter or B eat its meat. Yeah. And I, I've taken a very similar approach. I mean, my kids have been around anything that I've, if they're around um, anything that I've, you know, killed, whether it's turkeys, deer, fish, and they get the life cycle of, you know, 
how we get meat, how we get food on the table, whether that's gardening something in the garden or whether that's, you know, a cow, you know, getting killed or a deer getting killed. So yep. they've yep. put it, they put it together and um, excited to see how, you know, they continue to take to it here in the future. It's super enjoyable. Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. All right. So I got to get into this with you because yep. Paul, uh, our buddy, Paul, an ear, uh, he, he says, I got a guy, he's very surgical in his approach to deer hunting. And yeah. so before I assume what that means, I want you to tell me what, what does that mean to you being surgical in your approach to deer hunting? Honestly, it's, I don't know if surgical is the right word. It's funny. Paul, Paul used that, but it it's probably a, because I have kids and because I, you know, work quite a bit mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm watching trail cameras, I'm watching the weather and I'm pretty, if, unless I'm taking the kids out, I'm pretty darn picky about where I'm going to sit, when I'm going to sit there gotcha. and making sure that one, the deer I'm looking for is in the area. The weather makes sense. The wind makes sense for a specific stand uh, associated with where that deer typically beds or where he travels or where he feeds. So, um, you know, I've kind of fell, fell into that by default. If I could, if I could, I'd be out there probably every night, you know, and it's uh, because of work, because of the kid, because of the coaching commitments, working with them that I've become, um, you know, pretty picky on when I go out and, and how I do it. Yeah. And so let me ask you this. Uh, it, it sounds like it's, is it, it's less about strategy and more about time. I mean, I know those two things kind of intertwine with each other, uh, but it's, I mean, obviously you have to know the strategy, but it's the time restrictions that force you to be surgical about it. Kind of. Yeah. And, and to best use my time while I'm out there, you know, I think that's what forces me to have strategy and that's what forces me to, you know, put the plots in and make sure I got my stands in the right spot, make sure that, um, you know, I'm watching the wind, weather, and all of that stuff, the yeah. thermals, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Wisconsin has ag. They got, uh, like, especially along the Mississippi River, they got some big terrain, uh, some steep, yep. you know, some steep, that uh, Buffalo County, I believe it is, and the, like, the, the, the Mississippi River valleys that lead into it. Uh, talk to us yep. a little bit about the farm that you hunt and uh and what the terrain like looks like on that farm yeah it's it's the unglaciated area so it's rolling hills Mm -hmm. it's rolling hills it's farmland um quite a bit of timber it's some tillable Uh, we recently you know moved on to the property that i primarily hunt Mm -hmm. i have access to a few others but um it's unique you know it's it's got i guess it's unique for the area it's it's got, you know, good bedding, it's got good cover, and it's got food. So, yeah. you know, it's the basics of hunting transition, hunting doe bedding area during the, the rut. Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of letting them get to an age structure. We got great genetics. Yeah. And so letting, letting the deer get to an age structure that, you know, I get excited about hunting and, um, yeah, waiting for the right opportunity. What, let's see here. When it comes to your your overall strategy, 
talk to us or well for, first the first question is i'm going to lay the foundation here how many acres do you have access to in a given year to play the game on say 350 to 400 350 to 400 um that's about the size of the the main farm that i have access to hunt as well and so i feel that that gives me a little freedom to be like move around a lot you know hunt different areas i can hunt back-to-back days i don't necessarily need to wait for a specific wind uh, you know because i have options talk on that 350 400 acres talk to me about your yearly i guess your overall strategy how do you approach any given season so you know leading into the season i get my cameras out Mm -hmm. and you know start working on getting an inventory of what's there did the bucks from the previous year make it through um you know for this this year for instance you know we found a matching set of sheds on a a buck really excited to see assuming he's going to make it through but excited to see him so getting the cameras out checking inventory seeing who's around and starting to put a game plan together i got a core set of stands at properties where i feel comfortable uh, Mm -hmm. based on history especially for you know rut funnels um, you know proximity to a food source Um, but then you know fine-tuning that approach if there's a buck or a certain area that he's living that um, you know i want to make sure i have a couple stands set up on we'll work on that throughout the summer then it comes down to food plots getting bigger into you know you know, forest stuff. So cutting trees, right. You know, making uh, more bedding cuts, things like that. Um, So yeah, that's really the approach leading into the season. And then it's how does my, you know, the weather and how does my trail camera data and how does my time align, align with having opportunities? I think you hit the nail on the head earlier is that time is really my limiting factor and living closer to hunting land. Now Paul's always picking on me that I don't, don't get out as much but it's um you know how it is man with with the kiddos and and with you know running around with work commitments and things like that and kids sports um just trying to find those days to get out and then i do take some some vacation as well around the rut yeah so how many other people have access to hunt the farm that the farms that you do i'd say about half of those acres I'm the primary hunter. Okay. No one else really else has access. The other one, it'd be probably one or two at most. So okay. pretty pretty fortunate that way. Oh, that's awesome. So you 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 actually have some control over some of the, the acreage that you hunt. Yes. Yep. Good. Good. And what's your neighborhood like in this area? I mean, are a bunch of like minded individuals or do you got some brown it's down guys? There are so one of the neighbors is a brown it's down, mm-hmm. but only during gun season. They okay. hunt opening weekend, and so they can do some damage, but I would say it's still limited when I look at some of the other landowners I know and what they're yeah. experiencing. Um, so that would be not too bad. The, another landowner is pretty pretty thoughtful about what how they're approaching it. They're not it's brown it's down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're watching trail cameras and communicating with other adjacent landowners, which I appreciate is, you know, here's what, here's what's out there. Here's what I've been seeing, making sure we're on the same page to, um, as far as how we're going to approach things. Right. And 
Yeah, a few others, but I'd say I've had both extremes, but overall, um, the one I have control on is, is a pretty good setup that way. I can feel like I can grow some deer. Yeah. Okay. And so then what does your average year look like then up there? Are uh, we talk like what, what, if you walked away with this buck every single year with, let's just say during the archery season, what does that buck look like for you? Thinking, you know, four and a half, five and a half year old deer and pushing, 155 plus okay all right so that's a uh and and are you able to are you able to close the deal on that on every every given year the last couple years i have since i've gotten control of you know some land so it's been um yeah it's fun you know some of the other land i have access to i don't have ultimate control of it Mm -hmm. but i have access it's an awesome piece of land and you know i've hunted it for a long time um but it's nice to have control and and feel like you can make an impact and actually grow deer and, and do things to help funnel them or help hold them a little bit more yeah that's awesome so okay so you're looking for a, a said um a set number of deer um you, you just described a caliber now every year I have a caliber of what I want to shoot and it's somewhere around, you know, that four-year-old, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old, I'm looking for something probably this year in the one fifties and up, you know? And so, but every year I get pictures of bigger deer as well. The cream of the crop, you know, the, 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 the big dogs. And so how often are you hunting that six-year-old that seven-year-old maybe that that 170 plus type type caliber deer seems like every it's tough to say i mean every three four five years okay i'd say you know there's always a couple shooters or bucks that would be on top of the hit list Mm -hmm. and um, i tend to be pretty picky i I mean i'll pass deer that I think are young or I know are young and have incredible potential. And, you know, the neighbors still may shoot them, you know, right. or a neighbor, a couple adjacent properties away may get a crack at them. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely big deer. Yeah. It's just a matter of them getting through and trying to make your home as appealing to them as possible to get them to spend more time here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, now, when it comes to aggression in a strategy for me, like we, I have a feeling we're, we're one in the same, right? We got the kids, we got the the schedule. We've talked about that. And so we have to, we have to pick very carefully when we go in, how we go in. Um, and some may say that's patient patience, but I, I disagree. I say it's very aggressive. Um, because for, for me, I feel like waiting, to the right moment is the most aggressive and then going into the best possible stand location is the most aggressive play that you can make. What is your, like, where would you say your aggression level is towards the season? Man, if I got a a good, I'm cautious. So when it comes to making sure the wind's right, making sure the thermals are going to be good and, like you said, aligning all of those variables, I still probably could be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. 
and and dive in a little deeper. Um, I'm big on access, how I'm accessing stands, how I'm getting in and out. Um, I don't like the bump deer right. unless I'm with my kids and I don't really care. Yeah. Um, so that's a mindset shift, but you know, I'm very picky. I probably could dive in a little bit deeper and be even more aggressive at times, Yeah. but I tend to hunt the fringes and fortunately the areas I've hunted and uh, the land I have access to, those are pretty darn good. So whether it's, you know, climbing up a, a steeper ravine and popping up on a ridge, you know, minimal access, good wind blowing out over the ravine. Um, those have worked, those sits have worked really well for me. Yeah. What are you a bigger fan of? Like, uh, like staging areas or bedding areas, uh, destination food sources, fence crossings. What, like, do you have a go-to or, or a favorite stand location to hunt? Love using staging areas and then terrain. Yeah. Um, using terrain, especially later in the year or not later in the year, but in the rut. Um, yeah. A lot of my success have been, you know, ridge pinches or just areas where I know when I do get that time, I have good wind, I'm going to see deer and yeah. they're going to be funneling through this area to, you know, try to go check another bedding area. So okay. those have been super successful for me. I say that all. And then there's been times where I've been hunting a really big deer in the past and kick myself because I probably wasn't as aggressive as I should have been. Okay. And, um, neighbor ended up killing that deer and finding it a couple weeks after he shot it with his bow. But, um, that sucks. Yeah. Wish, you know, looking back at that situation, I hunted the fringes and had them on camera, you know, a hundred yards behind me and tried using terrain in that situation and just um, probably wasn't aggressive enough Yeah, with where I was getting pictures of them. At. Yeah. Have you ever, have you had kind of an aha moment yet in your career where, or your hunting career where you or or an experience or maybe uh, a season or something that made you go bugow i i understand now i understand how they move i understand where they move i understand like how weather affects them oh for sure yeah i would say it, it was probably four or five years ago okay as i started to have more time so when i got done playing in the nfl we talked about how i didn't hunt much when i was playing yep. and so when i got done playing i coached at university of wisconsin madison uh, on the football staff as an assistant strength coach for one year so i didn't get much time out hunting there but as i probably those year or two after i got done coaching and actually got to spend more time in the woods um you know got to see how deer react how they move how they you know, where we react to certain things. And really for me in this hill country was putting together, I'm a firm believer in the wind and, and the thermal. So putting together not only how they move, but how they want to uh, use that terrain and then how I can use that terrain to my advantage, depending on morning, evening, wind direction, um, just putting that full picture together. Yeah, yeah. And did, once you were able to do that, did uh, success come immediately? Not really. It was, you know, kind of a slow thing. And, and like, I'm fortunate to hunt some really good land. So I think that's a huge part of it. But, you know, the last, like I said, three, four, five years have been able to put together a picture on what that looks like year in and year out and consistently have success by just doing some of the basics. 
the basics. Be attacking with the right wind, the right thermals, you know, being on good land, being on good transition areas. Um, yeah. 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 But, but that said, I still want to find ways to continue to push myself as a hunter because on private land, it's very comfortable and I love having success and love growing deer and, and doing all of that. But, you know, I, I'm still looking for that next thing and to continue to challenge myself so I can continue to learn. Yeah. And, um, just enjoy that too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, have, have you ever had a deer that you kind of have been, I know you, I, you said you shot a 200 inch deer one year. What year was that? That was 2009. 2009. Okay. So that was your yep. freshman year in college. So, sophomore. Well, yeah. Sophomore, sophomore year. year. Okay. Outside. And that was with a gun, right? And that you, you, you had no clue that deer was there. Okay. Exactly. Uh, yep. Okay. So congratulations on that. I hate you a little <laughs> bit for that. <laughs> like, I wish, I wish a, just a random 200 inch deer would walk by my stand sometime. I, I mean, I, I've had it happen once I screwed up, but, but nonetheless, um, has there ever been a deer that you've been just completely obsessed with? There has, this, this would have been three, four, five years ago. I'm horrible with dates, but yeah, there was a, that deer I mentioned earlier, whereas a monster deer, I think it ended up scoring like 215, 214, 215. Mm -hmm. And I had him all over my cameras and never laid eyes on him in the flesh. I mean, he's been, he was behind me, like I said, in one sit, a hundred yards, um, never saw him and just became absolutely obsessed with him. And that's where I wasn't aggressive enough. And okay. That, really that buck. Gotcha. Yep. And so how many years did you chase this deer? That one was just one year, one year. He's, okay. Yeah. It wasn't a big story of you know i had multiple encounters with him over you know three four years and watched him grow up but um yeah i i did get i should say i got a picture or two of him the year prior and then had him more regularly basically from mid-august till when he was shot or mid-october excuse me till when he was shot um in november okay so let's let's uh talk about what this deer was doing okay and then if you had the delorean to go back in time to to be more aggressive like you mentioned talk about yep. what you would have done different to get this deer on your wall yep this deer was basically transitioning from bedding which was actually on the neighbor's land okay through the land i had access to to food consistently and this was mid-october and the dude was daylighting all over the place on this land I had access to. What is so consistent? Process, what, what, in your opinion, what's consistent? As far as like, uh, this was, like, you said he was consistent, you know, consistently yeah. daylighting. What is that? Is that like three days a week? Is that five days a week? Is that every single day? Yeah, this guy was probably five days a week. Okay. Wow. I would say, yeah, it was very, very consistent. So my thought process was, okay, I'm going to hunt him safe. You know, he's daylighting, he's on this land I have access to, so he's, you know, not exposed to a bunch of other hunters. I'm going to hunt the fridges, Yeah. you know, 
play it safe. I'm going to get an opportunity at him because that's in the past. That's always how it had worked. And I didn't. Yeah. And so there was a few spots where he was consistently funneled through a fence crossing uh, between two fields. Um, you hear my kiddos or no? No, I'm, I haven't heard them yet. It, it could be I haven't heard them or I'm so good at ignoring children that <laughs> my brain just there isn't picking it up. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. But when I'm on a podcast, it's a little different. But yeah, there were certain spots where I had cameras set up that he was always funneled through. And I was trying to put yeah. together the picture on where else he was traveling and never was able to do that. But if I would have dove into those spots, looking back in hindsight, that one area was a low area fence crossing area and the wind tends to swirl in there. Okay. So my, that was my big fear in there was blowing them out. Um, and so I never did that, Yeah. but he consistently daylighted there. And like I said, you know, four five, six times a week. Wow. And, um, so I was always hunting the fringes of that area along with a few other areas that he was consistently passing through that were tough so, areas to hunt. So he must have had, like, if you weren't seeing him on the fringes and you were still getting daylight activity of him five, day, five days a week, yep. he must have been on a line, like a line where you couldn't see him from the fringes that you were hunting, correct? Exactly. And he was... He was very calculated. I don't want to give him too much credit, but right. very calculated as far as how he traveled and not so much when he traveled, but how he traveled. Mm -hmm. And they were very, they gave him the advantage, at least what I would perceive as an advantage from a wind perspective and a vis lacking vis visibility perspective. Wow. Man, it's crazy how they do that. Um, and of course, you know, now going back into time, here wishing that you would have done something different um right. because i can tell you what i would have done and I, and that's that's me today not me five years ago you know like right. or, or something like that but today what would you have done? i would have oh dude i would have been in i would have been yeah. on that trail that he was crossing or wherever that trail camera was probably the second day i got trail camera picture of him daylight once yeah. for me once is oh okay this deer's daylighted Two is now, okay, now we're starting to have a, a, a trend or a pattern. Yeah. Then on the third day, I'm in there, right? If, if I have the ability to do that, uh, yep. you know, yep. and if the wind is right, like if the wind's out of the north and he's coming south to north, maybe that's not a good idea. But along that line, I'm, I'm looking for the J hook to get into the stand. I'm looking for mm. the 90 degree access route to get to the stand location. Anyway, that's just me. Yep. What, like, what would have you done different now to capitalize on that, that pattern? Exactly what you're saying. I mean, for him to be on that pattern for three weeks and for me not to dive in there yeah. and just to continue to hunt the fringes, it's like, I mean, why not? Even if yeah. the wind swirls in there, I mean, pick, pick the best day or just get in. I mean, get in there in a ground blind, something yeah. that is going to give me a bow shot to that pinch point where he's crossing as difficult as an area as it is to access. Um, I mean, looking back, I would have done it. What did you it need? What did you need What's for a, a wind direction that in your opinion would have put you in the most favorable uh, position? Strong, a strong East wind. 
Ooh, those are rare too, man. I know. Because then I would have blown the wind right down that fence crossing into the ravine fence area. Yeah. And um, yeah, that would have covered some of my my sound getting into that area, hanging a set and or and or setting up a ground blind and would have limited the impacts of of thermals as well because it was just been yeah, you know, pulling down through that ravine. So a lot of times the wind that you need and the wind that the deer want are two completely different things, right? So so that's where cutting the wind kind of steps in, in into play. Um, did you find a pattern in what wind direction that he actually liked to come through that area the most with? I didn't because we didn't have any strong east winds come through mm-hmm. and he was so consistently traveling through there that, and it sounds silly, right? In hindsight, yeah. why didn't I dive in there? But from all of my past experiences, yeah, you know, I was able to get cracks at deer like that by doing what exactly I exactly what you did. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so it, it, um, a good learning experience that, Hey, if you got a deer consistently doing something, yeah. even if it's not the most favorable area, dive in and make it happen. Well, especially, you might get more crack at it, but yeah, it'll make it happen. Yeah. Especially on, on property that you can control, right? Mm-hmm. If this was public, I'm hammering right into that thing. If it's, if it's a piece of property that is private with other hunters, I'm going to do exactly what I just said I was going to do. If it was property that I, that I had 100% control of, and I knew no one else was going to be in there, you know, bumping him. Well, shit, now that's a different story. So I, and I can understand why you did what you did. Um, Especially if you're finding success a certain way every single year doing it there's no need to jump in because eventually he's going to come by on the right you know especially if you know your property and how they work through the terrain uh so my next question is okay so that didn't that didn't work out now that you know that specific deer's um pattern through that area is there another buck doing the same thing right now or are is there deer movement through that area doing exactly what he did to where the next time a, a buck of that caliber or, or that grabs your interest starts doing that, you can you know what to do? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is a natural travel area for him. It's just a matter of having it be the right deer yeah. to where it makes sense to dive in there. Gotcha. Do you have a stand prepared and ready now for that? I do not. You do not. But, nope. Okay. It's, um, yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be either a hanging hunt or one that I need to get set up here in the future. Okay. All right. So you, you know where you need to be, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I even, I've even went to the point of, you know, cutting a better access route through this ravine. It's mm-hmm. super brushy. Um, I always hesitate on that because it seems like the deer end up using it more when it's a super thick area and yeah. you cut an access trail. It's yeah. like, all of a sudden the deer make that part of their normal, their normal access and travel, travel pattern in which is frustrating. So cut that a couple of years ago. Um, still debating whether I freshen that. I want to freshen that up, but whether I actually hang a long-term set there. Is this, is this location, like if you envision it happening again, is this an afternoon style hunt or is this a, uh, a morning coming back to bedding type of hunt like how do you envision Based it going what, down this that buck was doing 
morning and afternoon, the big one. But typically I would say it's a morning set okay. where they're coming back and you can you do have a little bit more flexibility with access as long as you get in early enough. Yeah. And um, I would say it's probably a better morning spot. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds to Okay. Now, is that location closer to bedding or is it closer to food? Bedding. Bedding. So yeah, man, yeah. getting in there in the morning would be beneficial, especially if they're right. cruising back from the food. That's awesome, man. Well, I hope it pays off for you. Uh, and uh, another, is the, is the next deer that you found the sheds to, is he running this pattern? That's a different property. So oh, okay. this is, the one I found sheds to is, um, on land I have sole control of this oh, one okay. was land I have access to. Gotcha. And so, um, different land, you know, got to get my cameras back out, see what's running that, that yeah. path here this summer, summer fall on the access land. Gotcha. Well, cool, man. Well, hopefully it all pays off for you. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and BS and we didn't really dive into anything too specific, but, uh, you shared your story and I know, uh, I love listening to stories about unique individuals and so do the people who listen to this podcast. So, uh, Brady, man, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and, and BS with us for a little bit. Thanks, Dan. Pretty cool to do a formal BS session with you after listening to many throughout the years. So thanks for having me and, um, And there you have it, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Brady. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, Vortex, Hunt Stand, and the Woodsman, the Woodman's Pal. Uh, please go out and support the brands that support this podcast. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download, subscribe, and follow along uh, with the Nine Finger Chronicles. It's that time of year, man. Uh, we got nubs. We got nubs growing, and uh, I'm excited to see where they grow what they grow into what deer return and uh man i'm just i'm really looking forward to it so uh good vibes in good vibes out and we'll talk to you next week